Welcome, everybody. This is Ed Mead. I'm the founder of Viewber and here in a personal capacity, really, this time to talk to Richard Blanco. Um, welcome, Richard. Thanks for coming along. My pleasure. Um, for those of you who don't know who Richard is, if you've ever been to any kind of get-together where landlords are talking about how to professionalise themselves or looking for a bit of advice, the chances are that Richard will have been one of the people you listen to. And he is actually uh, the London representative of the National Landlords Association. Uh, not only that, but if you YouTube him, you'll see he's done quite a lot of programs, professional punter work, this sort of thing. He's a very, um, he's a very good name in the, la very well-known name in the landlord uh, business, really. And uh, it's an area that I don't know much about. So just a little bit, Richard, just, just give us a little bit of a qualification from the landlord perspective in terms of the size of your own portfolio and, and, and a little bit perhaps about how you got into it first. We were talking on air when we were off air a little bit about how you didn't like doing things in other people's time. So just a little, <laughs> little bit of background on who Richard Blanco is. Yes, OK. Well, um, yes, I'm a landlord with properties across six London boroughs. So I've got um, 13 properties and I house, I think it's 32 people. I've got shops as well as um, uh, houses and flats. Um, so not a huge portfolio, but, you know, gives me a fair amount of work. And with it being in London, obviously, you can build up a sort of bigger size capital in terms of uh, sorry a bigger size portfolio in terms of capital um, with fewer properties I actually began in theatre and dance uh, many years ago so I was um, a community dance worker for London Borough of Lewisham or dancer in residence actually so um, and I set up Greenwich Dance Agency as it was then um, and was director of that so I, I ran a dance centre and venue and I worked as an arts consultant as well I then did an MA in theatre and I did quite a lot of performance artwork which is something I was very interested in um, and meanwhile um, I decided to start buying property because I was lucky and I bought a flat in Hackney which went up a lot in value um, and I, I was actually working as a consultant at the time, specialising in HR and diversity stuff. Um, and I gradually started to build up the portfolio then. And it was the kind of classic model where you, uh, well, I would buy something at auction that needed refurbishment. I'd get it quite cheaply. I'd spend money on it, refurb it, and then refinance it. And that would give me some capital then to buy another property. Um, uh, and I would also be kind of squirrel squirrelling away any rent that I got to, to kind of get more of a deposit. So how did you get the confidence to do that in the first place? Because it's quite a big jump to go to an auction and buy your first property. You really need to know what you're doing. It's true, yes. Um, I always say you have to have uh, nerves of steel, really, to buy at auction. Um, how did I get the confidence? I guess through research. I'm a great one for researching before I do anything. So I, I would, would be found sort of hanging out at Waterstones late at night, reading through all the property books, you know, um, eking out a coffee, you know, <laughs> for several hours. Any books you'd particularly recommend? Uh, they, well, this is, we're talking 2003, four, so it was okay. a long time so ago, and most of those will well, be actually out a of lot date. has moved on, and we'll come on to this <laughs> yes. because, of course, the the job, which is really what it is, of being a landlord, has changed so much. And someone the other day told me that there are something like 150 different pieces of legislation that landlords need to comply with. In fact, I think it might have been you who said that when yes. we were on air the other day talking about something. <laughs> Quite possibly. Um, I mean, that's a lot to, 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 to take at risk. And my understanding is that as many as 70% of landlords out there are amateur 
landlords. They don't take necessarily professional advice. We'll come on to your advice as to self-managing or agents or whatever it is or how you look after yours. But but as you said, has changed an enormous amount over the last, well, 2003, crikey, that was 15, 16 years ago. So that was that when you started then? That's when I started, yes, yes. So, you know, I was a great kind of spreadsheet man and I would do lots of research and um, see hundreds of properties before I would actually buy one, you know. Yeah, well, I think that's lesson one, listeners, isn't it? I mean, mm. you know, do your research. Um, because I think that certainly if people of my generation, I'm a little bit older than you, not a lot, a little bit older than you. And um, the impression of landlords, certainly when I was growing up, was always a slightly negative one. And I think people had come from the, um, uh, they'd become come from the sort of Rackman, um, uh, Nicholas Van Hoog Stratton. People had this terrible image of landlords. And I think some of the legislation that's that's changed over the years has been good because it has tightened up the industry. But what's your view on professionalisation? Because when I've heard you talk in the past, in the past, you've been very passionate about professionalising the industry. And of course, that is what the government claims it's trying to do with all the the recent tax changes and the the changes to wear and tear allowances and all this sort of thing. Um, do you think landlords are more professional now than they used to be? Um, I think. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm happy with some of the regulation because I think uh, there probably are too many people who don't uh, behave in a professional enough way and they, of course, um, affect the reputation of the rest of us. There are quite a lot of accidental landlords out there as well who have come across a property and don't really understand the legislation around it. I think there was a real turning point, though, actually, when George Osborne brought in the Section 24 tax changes because they were fundamentally unfair and are unfair because we're taxed on our turnover. Um, it, in a way, it is trying to penalise smaller landlords and it's it's kind of saying, well, if, if you don't want to be penalised tax-wise, then then set up a limited company and buy that way. And just just to interrupt you, sorry, Richard, just so that some of our listeners understand, the Section 24 changes were brought in a few years ago now, three or four years ago, um, and they were designed to stop landlords basically being able to claim relief at full rate of tax, um, stopping them being able to to claim wear and tear allowances on furniture and and white goods and this sort of thing. Um, but they were being phased. So it's worth mentioning that for a lot of people, these these the, the, the changes that were instigated by George Osborne in the Section 24 so-called changes to the uh, Second Finance Act are only now beginning to bite. Exactly, yes. We're in year two at the moment. So yeah. tax bills that people are paying on the 31st of January um, are, are form year two. It's been phased over four years, so we've got two more years to go. And I'm hearing more and more from landlords about this now because they're starting to feel the effect. Um you know, what uh, he was trying to do there was put the brakes on buy-to-let. Um, and, uh, you know, he also made it easier for first-time buyers uh, to come into the market with help to buy, etc. But what really irks me is that we also then had the additional stamp duty, that's the 3% additional stamp duty, and the Prudential Regulation Authority bringing in regulation of buy-to-let mortgages, including special underwriting standards for portfolio landlords, so that's landlords with four or more properties. So for me, those three amounted to really slamming the brakes on the sector. 
and setting in train a, quite a negative narrative really around landlords. And those prudential changes you were talking about, this is about rental coverage of the mortgage payments? That's right. So the introduction of stress tests, which are, are too high really. And basically in London, it means that you can only borrow about 60% now maximum really. And what is the percentage that you need as it's, coverage? The minimum is 125% at 5.5%. So the idea is that your rent must cover 125% of the mortgage payment as if you were paying an interest rate of 5.5%. Now, most buy-to-let mortgages really are in a range of sort of 1.3 to 2.5, that sort of area. So they're a long way from 5.5%. And the other thing is, if you are a 40% taxpayer, um, you will be stress-tested at 145%. Uh, times 5.5%. So that really makes it quite tough to get a mortgage, certainly in London, over about 60% loan to value. Now, in some ways, it's positive for those of us who have remained in the market because it's really cut back on competition. The market feels very different now, uh, certainly in London. It's a bit bubblier in in the northwest and the midlands etc there's still quite a lot of activity um in those areas as far as i understand it um so some landlords argue it's quite good in london the southeast because you're able to pick up a bargain you've not got as much uh competition depends whether you think prices are going to continue to drift downwards um so those changes really hammered landlords in an a way that's over the top i think but uh, Certainly, um, in my previous guise um, at, at Douglas and Gordon, um, that business started in the late fifties, very much as a rental. But it started by managing rentals and finding um, places for people to rent, which wasn't very fashionable in those days. Um, and I think for a lot of people, rentals have always been considered to be a sort of slightly second-hand sort of way of living. But actually, um, with this professionalisation. Of, of of landlords do you think that renting in 2019 is a is a better proposition do you think tenants are better treated now than they were when you started in 2003 um i think if you were always a good landlord and you cared about your tenants and wanted to provide good homes i'm not sure very much has changed really um but you know we do have to have things like gas safety certificates we're going to have to have electrical safety certificates at, at some point um and licensing in some cases means that um, the poorer quality properties are being inspected and um, those landlords are being forced to improve. Um, so I don't think it's so much about the offer uh, improving. I think it's about the lower end of the market being uh, forced to pull its socks up. And that's that's quite right. The problem is that landlords will say the good ones are having to pay for the bad ones because it's the good ones that are paying the licensing fees and all that local authority bureaucracy that goes with it in order to find the bad landlords. And you could argue that local authorities could have found the bad ones anyway. But it's not that the, the licensing isn't, isn't universal, is it? It's some councils that do it and some don't, number yes. one. Mm. And if you are a council that does it, as you say, you've somehow got to go and find the landlords that aren't. So how would they even begin to go about doing that? Well, um, we talk about intelligence-led enforcement um, at the National Landlords Association. So there's lots of data out there um, to help you find uh, problem households or uh, homes where there might be issues around property standards. And, you know, uh, some people talk about the dirty curtain test, where you can literally walk down a street and look at which properties 
might have problems and knock on the door and find out what's going but on. But isn't so, the problem these days that if you did, let's use the dirty, I love that expression, dirty <laughs> curtain test, and you do a search for that property and it's an offshore company or it's a company that's very difficult to get behind. Yes. I mean, how far will a council, even if you are lucky, unlucky enough, depending on how you look at it, to be a, to, to be a landlord of a property in a, where a council is trying to enforce these, this licensing. Mm. It just strikes me that it's, a, you know, bearing in mind that I think there are something like five, five and a half million landlords in the UK at the moment, something like that. Gosh, I've not heard that high a number. No, but. Well, maybe that's wrong. What is the right number, do you think? I think it's think? Uh, around 2.3 million. Is that's it 2.3? Okay, okay. It's, it's still a huge number. It's still a huge number. And which percentage of, of those do you think are covered by licensing at the moment? Oh, that's pretty tricky. I mean, it's a big issue in London and in East London where all of the borough, East London boroughs now have licensing. So I'm particularly affected okay, by it. Okay, because that's your neck of the woods. Yes. Okay, well, you're a, mm. you, you're a good... Um, Example. I mean, I think that's why we're talking. I think you're a great example of someone who is trying to do it professionally. So let's talk a little bit about the way you go about it. So, I mean, obviously, one of the things that's changed recently um, to a to a very large extent is the ability for landlords to use technology more to manage in terms of uh, reference checking and producing all the paperwork, et cetera, et cetera. These companies like Open Rent, UPAD, some of these people that that, that produce the boilerplate templates of, of um, agreements and they, they, they will do the checking for you. Um, do you advocate using that yourself or are you an, or do you use agents or a mix? Um, I mostly manage properties myself and I will use agents to find tenants sometimes. Um, and I tend to still use high street agents actually that I've got a relationship with. But I have used some of the online agencies um, before like UPAD and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's rumoured that as agents become more regulated, that actually uh, tenant find will go more online and, and high street agents will tend to do more management. So who knows what might happen in future. Um, in terms of using apps and stuff like that, um, I get a bit worried about using them sometimes because um, I kind of prefer having my own spreadsheets and things like that uh, to manage stuff myself. But... You know, I'm sure uh, more and more people will start using technology and apps. As I mean, I can't on. help feeling that it's a slightly generational thing again. I mean, certainly my kids who are 25, if they were ever lucky enough, heaven forbid, to, to own their own properties and rent them out, I think they would feel far more comfortable doing things via an app. Whereas perhaps uh, those of us who've been around for a bit like to have someone at the end of the phone that we can talk to or shout at or whatever well, i mean i will use things like um whatsapp and email and so on like when i brief my tenants when they move in i say when you report a repair please email me a photograph of it as well and stuff like that so i'm certainly using technology in those ways my builder's got a dropbox on his um phone and i put all of his job sheets and photos of the repairs into dropbox and that's how he accesses them because he's not very good with paperwork you know so so i do use technology um but i think the issue with apps and stuff like that is lots of entrepreneurs like to do things in their own way i think and an app forces you to do it in the way that the app wants you to do it so i think that's why some of us struggle a bit with with apps we've had lots of kind of offers at the national landlords association um that help you manage rent and uh, rent payments and stuff like that and i'm always surprised at how many people don't take them up actually and i think it is because we we like to do them in our own way, you know. Um. Yeah, I think that's always been one of the issues about properties 
is you you know it's a it's estate agency and lettings agency is still one of the last great bastions of the entrepreneur a lot a lot eighty percent of estate agents are one or two offices they're very uh, very entrepreneurial, which is a benefit in one has always been a benefit on one side, but it's a negative from the point of view that they're very resistant to change to to embracing too much modern technology i mean the problem is if you're a a one office operation lettings is very much now the only bit of most estate agents operation that uh, accrues value because it's a consistent income Mm. Um, but i think they find it very very difficult to know which way to jump from a technological perspective because if they spend too much money they might go bust so they tend not to so they bury their head in the sands they stay they stay with their heads buried in the sand. And I think it's some of those that you mentioned earlier that the sort of tail wags the dog a bit sometimes with with lettings agents. And it's the bad one or two landlords or lettings agents that give the entire industry a bad name. And actually, you and I both know that the vast majority of landlords and and lettings agents are fantastic. And they've got no interest in bad publicity. And these days with reviews and things like that, they can get clobbered so quickly. Yes. Um, and lettings agents, I mean, I, I still sit on the Property Ombudsman um, Industry Forum. It's now a, um, a unitary board, but I used to sit on the, the board of the TPO for a very long time. And uh, admittedly, when lettings agents had to become part of a redress scheme, they, they, they suddenly accelerated the number of complaints. But of course, lettings is a very immediate and it's a very it can often be a very emotional business. When you move in and something's not there, you just get immediately fired up about it. So, um, so you tend to manage that type of thing yourself. I do. And what I think is key there, I, mean, I think a really valuable asset in my business is my relationship with the tenant. I, I did have an assistant for a while and... Um, uh, and then she left and some of my tenants complained that they didn't like it whilst I had an assistant because they lost that direct contact with me um, and I, I kind of learned a lot from that really um, and you know me popping around as I did to see a leak in a property today and to look at the oven means that I just spend a bit of time with the tenant find out what's going on have a, a, a quick look around and see what else is going on and just get a feel for things and you know that's worth that 15-minute visit can yeah, be yeah. worth so much. <clears throat> no, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. And I mean, um, turning just quickly to your um, representation of the sort of London bit of the National Landlords Association. Um, I mean, I've always been a great believer that the best people to help other people are people doing the same thing. So from a landlord's perspective, the National Landlords Association is a forum for landlords to discuss topics with each other. Yes, it's a kind of trade body in a way that you can become a member of. And um, we've got over 40,000 members and we're in contact with, I think, 70 or 80,000 landlords in total. Um, And so uh, you can use all of the services that are on offer, um, often at discounts. You can use the advice line as well, which is invaluable, I think, for lots of landlords. And then you can also go along to um, local meetings. So I'm one of three representatives in London and we run meetings across um, Greater London, and then there are there are meetings across um, uh, England and Wales. And these are for existing and maybe even wannabe landlords to come along to and get some advice. And because that strikes me as being a really clever way of 
doing things. I mean, if you want to become a landlord, nothing's going to help you more than talking to someone who's been there and done that. Absolutely. And I would really recommend going to NLA meetings because you meet the kind of down-to-earth end of the community, really. People who, yes, want to make a good living, um, but generally feel uh, quite passionate about the work that they do and care about their tenants and want to do things properly. I think some of the other kind of meetings arenas are a bit more focused on making your first million and that kind of thing. And and, um, sometimes a bit overly commercial. So I prefer what we do at the NLA because I think we've got our feet firmly on the ground and the work we do is about um, uh, education and trying to promote positive values, getting people to have values-driven businesses really and trying to promote positive role models of landlording. Yeah. I mean, I, I know certainly that from my old, certainly in the old days, 20, 30 years ago, people used to look at uh, investing in property as, as a long-term um, uh, proposition and the returns that they got from their investments in property were as much from the increase in capital value over 20 years as they were from the yields. And obviously what we've seen, any landlord who who, who rents properties in London will have seen that yields have, have plummeted really as values have gone up and rents haven't kept up. Um, and obviously it's why a lot of people go off to other parts of the country to try and chase yield. You, you clearly prefer to keep stuff in the area in which you live so you can manage it and be nearby or at least vaguely nearby. I like to be within half an hour really, half yeah. an hour's drive. Well, I think that's yeah. very, very mm. good advice actually because a lot of people come on to me. I, I remember when I was doing my slot on LBC, a lot of people used to ring up and say, well, I've seen a lovely investment in Spain or whatever it is and it sounds great. But, you know, if you're going to manage a property. But to what extent do you look at your portfolio as being long-term capital value uh, versus yield. How would you balance that up? I was very strict on my uh, minimum rental yield um, when I was buying, actually. I've, I've paused from buying. So it had to be a minimum of 6%. And if it was... Gross or net? Um, that would here. be gross. gross. Okay. So um, less than 6%. And I would kind of raise my eyebrows and think, you know, do I should I really be buying this? It also had to be within 10 minutes walk of a tube station. And I had to be confident that... Um, I could let it to families or professional sharers. Um, and I bought in East London at a time when you could buy for sort of 180, 200. So terraced houses, 180, 200, up to 250. It used to be up to the 250 stamp duty um, level that I would buy. Um, so I thought I was quite strict on yield, but I also bought in areas where I would get some capital growth. So along the um, crossrail corridor uh, through East London and just generally in areas that I thought were up and coming. And, you know, often you have to be a bit brave and buy somewhere that's a bit grotty in the hope that it's going to improve. No, no, sure. But that's mm. really encouraging to hear that someone like you, who's a professional landlord, recognises the necessity to look at the long-term growth potential as much as the income. Because I think a lot of people read too many Daily Mail headlines and think that, you know, this country is full of amateur landlords who are getting 90% loan-to-value mortgages and desperately trying to live off the income from their their rentals, which is just not the way it is. It's just... No, I mean, you should absolutely look for uh, rental yield and capital growth, I think. I mean, that's the best strategy. And it's certainly... I've got, uh, you know, my loan-to-value is is quite modest now. And um, uh, because I bought at times of 
properties are reasonably cheap in these areas and, and they have gone up. You know, I know I have friends who bought through sale and rent back um, before it was banned, sort of pre-credit crunch. And the the problem with that was um, they, the, they would just buy properties wherever they got the opportunity to buy. So they've ended up buying in areas where there's no capital growth, where the property was a bit run down because actually the person who owned it couldn't afford to yeah, improve so it. They were a bit and, blinded by the original sort of shining. It looks, sounds great, certainly, SPAC. The person's living there and they just stay there. You've got your ready-made but tenant, you're, But you're sort of blinded but, by that and don't look at the longer term. Yes, and by buying at auction as well, it means that you can refurb and get that property right up to spec from the word go. And that's also going to attract a good tenant. Yeah, uh, so yeah, that, that that's been my strategy. Just to take you back and put you on the spot a bit there, I, I, I noticed you said you've paused buying at the moment. Is that yes. because you're, you've been trying to get your loan to value down or you're a bit worried about capital growth in the near future brexit heaven knows what well what's the reason why you've paused there always seem to be times in the cycle i think where it feels like we might be coming to the end of the cycle and and prices are going to retreat a bit um and it feels a bit like that to me at the moment um you know going to auctions in 2016 2015 2016 they were too busy prices were being pushed up too high too many people were trying to buy um, and the the rental yields are well below my minimum 6%. So those were all messages to me that now isn't a good time to buy. So I'm not someone who would just buy for the sake of it because you've got to keep buying. Um, so that's partly why. I think also the uncertainty of Brexit, um, just reviewing my tax situation, what to do in future. Um, I'm not sure whether to restructure a lot of people, well, something like 12 or 13% of landlords, according to NLA research, are thinking of restructuring. That's because of Section 24 changes. That's right, yes. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people are looking at LLPs and limited companies, etc. Um, so I'm kind of oh, sitting at the, on the edge, really. And, and will your income, because of Section 24, actually go negative, or will you still stay on the positive side? No, I'll definitely stay on the positive stay side. The positive. I mean, I made sure that my portfolio is very profitable because, you know, I, I just felt that that was important, really. What's yeah. the point in having a portfolio so, that's so not profitable? So what are the choices then? You said 12 or 13% says LLPs to turn themselves into companies. Someone the other day, we had actually a guy called Tom Tennant in here the other day who is a the chief executive of a residential REIT, which is an interesting proposition. I mean, he is offering landlords the opportunity to to swap their properties into a REIT to keep the income going. And then, of course, they can roll up their CGT uh, liabilities um, and so there are other alternatives that seem to be coming. Are there any more that you've heard of? What are the alternatives that you've come The across? main one is the hybrid LLP limited company model where you, uh, you can also I mean, it's quite complex and it will typically cost you around £15,000 fee to go into it. And um, annually, what would that cost on top to keep that? Maintained? And it depends which scheme you use. There are various schemes around. So some some of the uh, schemes will charge a kind of monthly fee and, and some don't. And, and you can just use your own accountants, etc., to maintain it. But you probably um, need to have a few properties to make that worthwhile, don't you? I maybe? would have thought so, yes. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day who said that his tax bill is going to go up by 15000 a year. So he's thinking, you know, is it worth spending 15000 on restructuring? But there are worries that there could be a, a test case that goes through the courts that, you know, questions whether or not the, the, these schemes are acceptable. Um, the housing market might be too adversely affected, of course, by Section 24. So the government might 
change the tax arrangements in some way. I mean, I'm not sure they'd ever roll it back. I feel like we're stuck with them for a generation. But um, they might bring in more favourable tax arrangements for accredited landlords. You know, there might be a landlord registry in future. Or who, who knows what could happen? So I'm a little bit wary of restructuring. The one attractive thing is around um, resetting uh, the value of the properties for capital gains tax purposes. So that certainly is attractive to people like myself who've had good capital growth and um, will are facing a very big capital gains uh, tax bill if I ever sell in my lifetime. So, um, so yeah, there are some dimensions that make it more attractive, yeah. regardless of how much. Well, <clears throat> I think it's a fascinating subject to talk about. I think we could, we could be sitting here talking all day, um, and I would I would continue to learn because I think it is such a it's a, it's a potential minefield. But you and I both know perfectly well that certainly we've now been 10 years in this low interest rate environment. People have been looking for other ways to invest their money. Very fortuitous period for landlords really in terms of interest rates. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And whilst people have continued to infer, well, particularly the Bank of England, been continuing to infer that interest rates are going to go up, it just doesn't look like that's going to happen. For I've been saying for ages that they're not going to change. Um, and they don't appear to be looking as if they're going to change in the near future. No, I think um, the the uh, next change is touted for kind of September 2019, autumn time. But I would, wouldn't be surprised at all if that shifted to yeah. 2020. I mean, I think they overshot by going down to a quarter percent, half a percent. I mean, I, I still can't get used to the fact that they're so low, but it has been ten over 10 years now. They've been at these levels. It is absolutely And none of us could, for, could have foreseen that. I mean, it has been, we've been incredibly lucky, really. Yeah. I do remember one landlord client of mine who had a deal, a revolving deal with his bank where he was paying 0.85% below base as his figure. And I do remember after the base rate went down to half a percent, he did consider sending a bill to his bank saying, I'd like to have the the 0.35 percent paid, please. I think it did catch an awful lot of people out, I have to say. Yes. Um, Okay. well, look, really appreciate your insights, Richard. Is there anything just as a sort of last um, talk, really, as a last sort of comment, do you have anything that you'd like to say as a landlord or to tell people out there who are thinking of getting into property, would you say, yeah, go for it? No, don't touch it with a barge pole. Where, <laughs> where would you be on that? Uh, I think if monitor? you're thinking of getting into it now, you need to have your head screwed on. You really have to understand all the tax implications. Um, and you're going to have to have a lot more cash than I had when I started, probably, because uh, you'll need much bigger deposits if you're hoping to get finance, really. You're looking what at, sort of deposits are we talking about now? Well, if it's London, you're looking at 40%, really. Outside of London, uh, probably the 25%, which is what we've become familiar with over the years. It was 15% when I started out. And I would steer clear of 85% buy-to-let loans because the interest rates are so much higher. You might as well get a 75% loan and get a much better interest rate and maybe try and get some of the deposit elsewhere through joint ventures and so on. I would say um, don't uh, turn your nose up at traditional buying a property with a mortgage um, and, you know, through straightforward buy-to-let lending. Sometimes people think they need to go for lease options and all these kind of exciting uh, mechanisms. And, you know, nothing beats really just that straightforward traditional buying a property through and a mortgage. And houses, flats, HMOs, where, where, what do you think, what, what have you discovered is your safest option? Well, I prefer buying freehold because I like to have control over the property. Uh, you know, if you buy a terraced house or a townhouse, you can potentially go up into the loft at some 
point or extend it, do a side return, something like that. So it's got potential for development. And if the Victorian house has got two separate receptions, then one of the receptions could be used as as a bedroom. I'm not a huge fan of bedsit multi-let HMOs, but I, I quite like HMOs where I've got a group of sharers on one AST and having two receptions is is helpful for that. Um, so that's that's always been the sort of property that I've favoured. 1930s type um, houses are also brilliant because often they're quite good for extending and, and going into the roof on as uh, so you sort of go up and, and they back. They tend to be better built. I rather agree with you there. They tend yes. to be better built. Yes, I mean, those Victorian terraces are often thrown up in a hurry, I think, yes. really. And um, we're very lucky. We're very lucky they're still standing. I think it's that lime mortar you know, that kept them together. Yes, I'd, be, I'd love to have been around at the time and ask the builders what the life expectancy was, you know, the, the built in. <laughs> Uh, life expectancy. Of well, I, I remember Melbourne. taking up um, the floor, the ground floor on one property to find that one wall had no foundations at all. So no, 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 <laughs> it was I just know. leaning on the, you know, the front wall. Okay. Well, look, um, look I think that's great advice. Um, I mean, I know you have your own website. Uh, which is, I think, Richard Bran- Richard Blanco, B-L-A-N-C-O.com. That's right, yes, and we're just rebuilding that, actually, yes. And um, you can also see um, my, some of my House Hunters International episodes on YouTube. If you uh, put into YouTube House Hunters International London, then quite a few of my episodes will come up. And I've also got a podcast called Inside Property as well, so that's at insideproperty.org.uk. And, and you know, I'd love to encourage people to join the National Landlords Association too, um, and uh, we're doing a 30% discount actually in February so if people are interested then do call up okay. and join well after people have been feeling poor over the Christmas period a 30% discount sounds like a good idea well listen I've really enjoyed talking to you I've, I've enjoyed it every time I meet you and talk to you um, and I would encourage people if they want any kind of advice on being a landlord from someone who's really been there and done that uh, you've survived for 15, 16 years building a portfolio at a time when frankly a lot of people would say it hasn't been that easy and particularly challenging perhaps over the next couple of years as the Section 24 changes bite. Um, I'd like to say thank you, Richard, for coming in and uh, the best of luck for the future. My pleasure. Thank you very much.